from the basement of my heart, I'd like to say thank you for tuning in and taking time out of your day to listen to the messages that I have to deliver. I am very, very grateful, and I love you, and I pray all is well in your life. A quick backstory of who I am and why I am here. Uh, my name is Lavoy J. Foster. I am 41 years old. February 8th, 2014 is my sobriety date. I do have a sponsor and an amazing support group, and without them and the universe, God, creator, great spirit, um, a lot of things wouldn't be possible for me. And I have taken the 12 steps when I had reached the my bottom, uh, my bottom of all bottoms. Um, when I was in Louisville, Kentucky in 2013, I had moved there. I didn't intend to get sober, but it was a part of the plan that I wind up at the men's healing place. And there I had taken the 12 steps. And what I had learned was spiritual principles in which whether you suffer from addiction or not, we all have vices. I understand that. Um, and we all have life's issues. So through the 12 steps, it was spirituality and really just putting pieces together, finding the truths about yourself um, and ultimately being comfortable in your own skin. Growing up on in Cape Cod, uh, I was the only black kid in my class for till about sixth grade. And that made me, um, I had a very tough time feeling like I fit in, um, you know, for visual obvious reasons. Um, I had a very, very good upbringing. Um, it's me, my, my mom, she raised us, me, my brother and my sister. I have an older brother. He's, uh, four years older than me and my sister's a year younger. Um, ironically enough, I have always been popular, but I still always felt less than. I had a ton of insecurities growing up, um, you know, outside of the obvious, um, you know, being the only black child. Um, I'm also half Native American of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Now, a lot of my cousins' skin complexion is lighter than mine. Um, when my hair grows, it grows out and up like an afro. But their hair is long, curly, and it grows down. So when I would go to powwows as a child, I felt like I didn't belong. Um, so where I belong was always um, a struggle for me. Um, I didn't like being skinny, um, let's just say uh, for a visual, my freshman year, I was five to 90 pounds. Everybody else just towered over me. Um, so that was another complex of mine. I felt like I had big teeth as a kid, big ears. Uh, and I understand that we are our worst critics, but there are levels to it in which I didn't learn until I had taken the steps and dove into myself where I had learned ultimately that I had an extremely low self-esteem, a very um, lack of respect for myself. 
I had zero confidence in every area. And ultimately, I was driven by fear. I was afraid of people, places, and things. I would always, when I was a kid, I used to put my hands in my mouth when I got nervous. And my mom, boy, if you don't get your hands out your mouth, you don't even wash your hands, you know. Um, But I was always very, very quiet. Very quiet. I would observe everybody, um, the scenery that I was in, until I got comfortable. And once I get comfortable, then I'm a total different person. Um, you know, I'm very outgoing, outspoken. Um, humor has gotten me through a lot, uh, um, a whole lot. And, you know, even to, I remember watching TV as a child and I would study the characters of a TV show, cartoons, um, movies, and I'm analyzing so in real life's situations, I would remember certain lines or even how they physically moved. And I would apply that to the situation that I may be in. You know, um, I had wound up getting into a car accident. Well, there was three car accidents in three months. Um, but the last car accident was the only one I was driving in. And it was about five o'clock in the morning where I totaled my brother's car. I had stole it. I was drunk. And they drove me to the Falmouth Hospital where because of the severity of my brain injury, they didn't have the equipment. So I had to get to Boston. And they had eventually told my mother that I was either going to be mentally retarded or a vegetable for the rest of my life because of the severity of the car accident. Now, two months later, my mother had actually told me that she went home. A voice told her to go home, do some laundry, relax, and then go visit me in Boston only because if they had to hook me to any machine, she would have told them to pull the plug because she knows... I wouldn't want to live like that. And it would also, you know, kind of be torture on the family. Um, I was in a coma for roughly, I want to say, six days. And, you know, I came out of it. And here, you know, I I am today normal, um, as can be. Um, You know, but because of the, the car accident, I had actually telling the story of the car accidents, I wound up getting introduced to stand-up comedy. So with the some of these curses do come blessings. And I was able to hide behind the stand-up comedy. I was able to hide behind, um, you know, obviously the humor, basketball. I was always wound up the center of attention. Um, and I've always gotten along with women. Um you know, I've, I have the, uh, I'm charming. So it's almost as if like, I have been given these tools. And some of them I would overdo um, to compensate for the insecurities, because I never wanted anyone to know how I truly felt about myself. Um, so Fast forwarding, um, you know, I I have a daughter. She was born New Year's Day in 2005. And her mother and I haven't been together since she was born, uh, before she was born. And that 
has uh, in, impacted a lot of my alcoholism where I couldn't focus. And I also didn't realize then how sick I was. There was a lot of things I was very, very ignorant to in which now the things that I know, it's my job and my duty to share these things because although I suffer from um, alcoholism, I'm still a human being. And a lot of things that I have gone through and felt people who don't suffer from addiction or alcoholism go through the same things. So there's no such thing as a stranger when we reach a certain level of vulnerability. And we're all in this together. There's no difference between us. And when we focus more on the similarities and not the differences, progress can be made and love can be shared. So through taking the the steps I had learned and it finally accepted who I truly am. I never wanted men to know how sensitive I am. I never wanted to share. I'm like growing up my best friends were females. So I got a lot of inside on women. Um I don't know women. Um, but I have a, I feel as if I have a very good understanding, you know, being raised by a single mom and my mother was very big on treating women the way I want her and my sister treated. And that meant a lot to me. Um, so there was a lot of things growing up that I felt as if I don't want people to judge me. I don't want pe. I want to people to perceive me as this. So I have to act accordingly. So throughout years and decades of basically wanting to fit in and ultimately learning that the people I kept around me dictated my life, how I would move, where I would go, um, how I would act. And there was no sense of freedom in that. Looking back, obviously, you know, in retrospect. So learning these learning these things, I have a, a very different understanding of what living is. I didn't live a day in my life until I got sober. And at that point, I was 34 years old. And that would repeat in my head through the years before I had gotten sober, 25 years old, um, 30. You know, you can pick the number. But it's, it's what's the point now? I'm this old. You know, um, the fear of the unknown was a major dictator of my life. And already being full of fear and operating out of fear, I had to position myself to where I knew the outcome. And that would require a certain number of people or just how these people are. Manipulation was a major key for me. And what would happen is I would manipulate people, places, and things so it worked out in my favor. But ultimately, I can't sleep at night because of the harm that I've caused. And on top of that, my spirit consciously knows you're better than this. 
I was not aware of the line that I crossed with alcoholism. Um, I started drinking at 18. I started drinking alcoholically by 19, meaning um, I was in college at UMass Dartmouth. And the first time I drank was two weeks to the day after I graduated high school. I never drank in high school. I never smoked anything in high school. My aspirations and dreams in high school was to go to the NBA, and I was a very good basketball player. Um, and, you know, and once I came back from college for my Christmas vacation, I'll never forget it. Um, I went to a house party and I had a 22 of Heineken, a 22 ounce of Heineken, and I was rolling some weed. Everybody in that party looked at me like, who is this guy? Because all through our high school, I was almost like choir boy. You know what I mean? And now I'm over here breaking up weed and rolling and drinking. And so they're looking at me like, who is this guy? But I felt cool. I felt like I have to, with every fiber in me, I have to avoid this conversation because I know I've, I'm turning. I know I'm changing. I feel cool because I'm in the in crowd now. You know, curiosity killed this cat. And I just don't want anybody else to feel an inkling of how I eventually got how the, the bottom that I reached. And the, the process, it's so gradual um so I was at school for 2 years in 2000 I came home from school I was kicked out because I never went to class so my attendance was horrible they asked me not to come back and that's when I became a day drinker and a morning drinker I remember specifically stating in college if you drink during the week or during the day you might have a problem and within, you know, a year and a half, two years, here I go, allowing and saying to myself, let me, I have nothing to do today. I'm not working or whatever. And I say, let me let alcohol make the decision for me. And I drank to get drunk, period. It does, even till this day, at seven years, um, sober tomorrow being February 8th, I'll have eight years. It still does not make sense to me to drink an alcoholic beverage and not get drunk. But that's just how my brain is wired. So drinking to get drunk, I drank fast. I drank a lot. And no understanding now the phenomenon of craving, because there was many times when I drank that I didn't want to get drunk. I just, you know, it was just habit. It was routine, but not knowing that I didn't have a choice. Um, like there was this one time when I was doing irrigation. This gentleman that I was working for, he was giving me $12 an hour. And he had said that if you can come in tomorrow, not smelling like liquor or drunk, I'll give you a $3 raise. I said, no problem. So I remember walking up to the store and I'm only going to get a 22 of Heineken. 
I'm not going to and I'm going to go to bed at a reasonable hour. So it's about eight, eight thirty. You know, I get um, my Heineken and then next thing you know, the store closed at eleven. And I am stumbling to the store at about 1030. I am cussing myself out. How did I get this drunk? And why am I going back to get more? I'm getting a $3 raise tomorrow if I don't show up in this condition. But, you know, he came to pick me up. And when I got in the truck, he just he put it in reverse for a second and put it right back in park. And he just looked at me. I didn't say anything. Um, I, there was a look of disgust and disappointment. But we wound up going to work. He still gave me the $3 raise out of um, love. We had a very, very great relationship. But ultimately, it was enabling. I don't blame him um, at all. I, I've learned about responsibility. Um so there was many a times where a big part of my life was avoiding responsibility and doing the bare minimum to, you know, pay bills or whatever the case may be, um, which is back to what I said of I had this circle of people that I felt I had control over so they can handle all of that. And I that's less for me to have to, to worry about. A very, very big fear of rejection, um, which was controlled by the low self-esteem and lack of self-respect. But fast forwarding, and I do apologize. I'm sorry if I am all over the place. Um, Bear with me. (laughs) Um, But fast forwarding, um, when my daughter was six, she had said that, uh, she said, Daddy, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I don't want to come over ever again. I said, you know, it's not your fault. Who loves you? She said, Daddy. And, you know, six years had passed before we um, ever spoke and I saw her again. I had wound up moving to Louisville, Kentucky um, two years after that conversation. And I remember you would think that when a your child comes into the the realm of things and the responsibilities and just being a parent like that's that's enough to whatever type of lifestyle that you're living. And for I had many moments where I would do well, very well, and alcohol wasn't really an issue. But then there were those moments where um, I had broken many, many promises to this little girl and I remember there were times I had an apartment um, the first three years that she was born. Um, I remember sitting in there and looking at her clothes and her toys and I would just cry because I knew I was better than what I was portraying and how I was behaving. I just couldn't get to that point of consistent consistently being good and I hated it I didn't like me um, there was many many reasons why I had conflict with myself and feeling as if I could do better um, so self-hate took over uh, a very happy place for me 
was self-pity. I loved feeling bad for myself. I loved crying about my situations, not being able to um, keep a job. I could find work, but keeping a job was another story. There was just years of buildup of not, you know, liking myself. So by the time I had gotten to Kentucky in 2013, I just reached a point where I didn't want to live anymore. You know, I felt worthless. And, you know, the the bus coming down Broadway, I believe it was the 18, numerous times I debated on jumping in front of it. And I didn't because in that split second, literal split second, it's what about the driver? They didn't wake up this morning knowing that they could potentially take a life. That's not fair to them. And then the other thought was, what if you jump in front of this bus and don't die? What are you going to do then? You know, um, I had a couple opportunities where I had a, a pistol, a thirty eight, and I wanted to turn it on myself. Um, a family member actually took it out my pocket the day that I actually felt that I had the guts to do it. But see, through all along these lines, there was always that something that said, what about the driver? That said, what if you don't, um, if you're not able to take your life? And I learned through sobriety um, and my grand sponsor, he had said one day in the big book study, he had said that something that tells you don't go over there. That's something that tells you that's God. So this power was always in me. I just never identified. I, I didn't have the capacity to identify it because, again, my self-worth and, self, and self-loathing, low self-esteem had just totally taken over. I was staying in a house that had no running water and no electricity for almost three months in the dead of winter. I mean, I'm... Like, you know, there's cockroaches, there's bed bugs. I'm going to the bathroom in a paper, and I mean in a plastic bag in the back, not showering um, for weeks at a time. I mean, by the time I got to detox, this was my fourth time um, because through the years, you know, I had tried to put together my own time, which I had at one point. I put together six months going to meetings every day. And then there was that time frame where my ride had said, um, I'm not going today. It was a Friday. So Saturday he had called and he said, okay, I'm getting ready to come get you. I said, no, I'm all set. Sunday, same thing. No, I'm all set. And he just stopped calling. And literally two weeks later, I'm drunk all over again. There were um, three other attempts where I did go to detox and I felt amazing when I had left. And less than a month, here I go drinking again. I'd gone to, um, because of my second DUI, which is, and this is actually very important to show the the powerlessness of alcoholism was after my car accident and being in the month, I'm being in the month, I apologize, being in the hospital for a month having a coma. I cannot see out of my right eye because of this accident, the severity of the the brain injury. Within a year 
of leaving the hospital, I got I got my first DUI. And then I got my license back. And within a year of that, I picked up my second DUI. Now, because of the second DUI, I had to go to this rehab for two weeks in Tewksbury in Massachusetts. And following the rehab is the three other times I had gone to Gosnold, which is in Falmouth. It's a detox. I'd gone there. And then, you know, going to Kentucky, I wind up in the fourth. It was... By the time I had got to detox, I had to peel my socks off of my feet. It was, I was done. You know, I I had nothing left and I surrendered. And the power to surrendering was, I don't have to fight anymore. It's not that my pride would allow me to look at surrendering as if I'm a punk. Um, excuse my language, but as if I was a bitch, you know, and that's not the case. Pride, my pride in my ego had blocked every opportunity of a blessing or help because I got it. The night I had gotten into my car accident, give me your keys, give me your keys, my pride in my ego. No, I not one time throughout my 15 years of um, drinking, did I ever give my keys up? And I'm grateful because there's people who have gone through less than I have and they're not here anymore or they're in a worse condition. And that means a lot to me. You know, um, for years, I would look in the mirror and look at your eye, look at the scars on your face. You did this. And I would just beat myself up rather than be grateful that you're still here, you know. So throughout taking these steps and accepting that I am sensitive, that I am emotional, that God made me perfect. I got in the way. My thinking, my low self-esteem and all these things had had taken from what the creator had created. So being, and I explain to people all the time, I'm 41 years old biologically, but where I live in my reality today, I'm coming up on eight years old in the best eight years of my life. You know, um, when I had spoken to my daughter when she was 12, she went from, you know, six was the last time we had spoke. But when she was 12, I was able to speak to her again in which, honestly, I didn't even know how to verbally talk because she's not six anymore. Um, it was great to you know see her and speak to her, but it wasn't all peaches and cream, you know. She and she was entitled to feel how she had felt, and it was not easy by any means to hear some of the things that I had heard. And my heart felt like it was ripped out, well-deserved. But because I had surrendered and accepted who I was, getting another drink hasn't crossed my mind for seven years now. No matter who loves me, leaves me, or dies, alcohol is not an option. And it hasn't been. And I'm grateful for it. I understand that I was supposed to go through... Every last thing that I had gone through to show me 
me and what happens when I get in my own way. So with who I am today, I am here to share with you the depths of knowledge of self and being comfortable in your skin. And the thing is, we can always have more or things can always get better. That's awesome for those who are comfortable in their own skin. But we can also get more comfortable when we are aware of bondage of self. What are the things within us that are holding us back? Some things from maybe childhood trauma or maybe not a trauma, but what is it about us that makes us feel we have to abide by certain rules depending on our circle of friends or something? But in essence, it's really just being honest with ourselves. What is it that we have to unpack? Now, in my future episodes, I will be opening up tremendously about very, very personal experiences with the hope shot of helping others say, me too, I'm glad that someone else spoke up just for comfort. And this also frees me from bondage of self because going from 15 years of alcoholism and the thought processes that came with it, there was also damage before that. So being eight years into it, it's up to the creator. If I'll ever reach a number of years being on this earth that I'll break even, but I, I do know I have today. All of us have today. Believe in yourself and understand that You go through things. Well, we go through things to get through them. There are times where we look back. I'm going you go through certain issues and how am I going to get through this? It's so hard or a breakup or a job getting fired or something like that. Think back in your life where there was the same moment. This is so hard. How am I going to get through it? But remember, you did. It's that simple. We got through. Sometimes we find ways to justify why we can't. Self-doubt is major. Society makes it very easy for us to doubt ourselves. On top of us our own internal belief system about ourselves. But we already have it in us to get whatever we want to get, feel great about ourselves. Sometimes we, I know I need messages regularly, you know, but I also, today I stand for something. You know, I was able to get back for five years. I had stopped doing stand-up comedy I was my second year of sobriety. I was able to get back into it. I started uh, making, I would go to Michael's. I would buy different beads and I would start making jewelry, um, just necklaces and bracelets, which I had stopped as a kid because I didn't want men or my my friends, my male friends to look at me like I'm soft. Um, So I started making jewelry again and, you know, 
I was able to, a, a friend of mine had uh, passed away from um, drinking and driving. Uh, she was the passenger. And my brother's godfather had passed away helping a lady on the side of the road. And what had happened was I had asked this young woman's mother about this basketball tournament. And she had just said that, um, you know, at one point, because they have a scholarship in her name. And she had said, you know, that she was ready to sell her house just to put money into the scholarship. And I said, I'll put together a basketball tournament. Essentially, the basketball tournament happened. And the man that I got the t-shirts from, he had said, how many t-shirts do you want? How many teams? I said, well, I don't know, 15. I've never done this before. And I'm nervous the entire time because I don't know who's going to come. It's, you know, when you show up, you pay for your team, we put you on the list and set the brackets up. And that's just that. So he said, we'll do 16 just to even it out. A literal two minutes before the first game of this tournament, a man said, I have some fifth graders who want to play. They showed up. They made 16. Um, the fear of the unknown was definitely present up to the date, even the date of. But I had created this relationship with the God of my understanding and trust. I trust this creator that this is going to go the way that it's supposed to. And it was perfect. And the surreal moment that I had, my buddy, he said, oh, this is a great tournament. Who put it together? I said, I did. And it was the look that he gave me. He said, you did this? I said, yes. And he said, wow, good job. And then I remember going upstairs and looking down at the tournament. The, there's two courts. And I remember looking down and in amazement. There's nothing that God can't do. And God lives within us. That's the point. The point is for us to get more in touch with us. And I had started, this was 2017. I had also started writing a book. Um, I was going real heavy for about eight months and then I had started working and, you know, life on life. So I wasn't able to really get back to it. Fast forwarding, my buddy that I used to work with when I was in Kentucky, when I was two years sober, he had a family member who passed away from heroin. So him and I became best of friends. And so 2019, he gets in touch with me and tells me he wants to publish a book. And I said, OK, you know, I'll send you what I have. And just about three months later, he sends me a copy of the book. So now I'm looking at myself on a book. In total amazement, it's where I remember being in eighth grade. English was always very easy, was a very easy class for me. Whenever we had to write stories and stuff like that, I was always picked to read in front of the class. Every year, I mean, up until my sophomore year, when I was in college, when I did go to class, um, I was always asked to read. So I knew in eighth grade, I'd love to, to write a book. But self-doubt always told me I would never be able to do something like put a tournament together. I would never be able to write a book. I'm now working on a second book. 
I would, you know, doing this podcast, self-doubt has had a major impact on me in my life. And to understand that I have that ability to fight it because I'm worth more. If I can do these things, I know you can too. Again, I would like to say thank you so much for taking a half an hour out of your day to listen to what I have to say. And I have many, many more podcasts to post about self-love, levels of it, again, more personal experiences. And I pray that there was something that I had said that will benefit you. This is not about me. I am total I I have that great understanding that my life is not about me. The creator takes care of me as long as I am not in my own way. I love you guys. Please have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and gracias for tuning in for another episode. I am very grateful for your time, your effort, and your energy to listen. And this is also very beneficial for me, so we are all winning. Today, I would like to talk about how somebody has it worse isn't just cliche. It is a true way of living and remaining grateful. Social media is huge. And we all step outside of our homes and go through life. We all may even know somebody who is less fortunate than us. Truth be told, at any given time, through one decision, all it takes is one decision. And we are now a part of the less fortunate there's many different circumstances to um, being a part of the unfortunate. It's not all the materialistic world. It's not all money. It, it can be how you feel about yourself. It can be that lack of self, self-esteem and, and many other things. We can all think of a time in our life where we felt less than. We have all experienced this. And it is important for us to hold tight to those moments. One, to be grateful we're not there anymore. We've made it. We're not done, but we made it out. And we understand that Those trying times, they do happen. But the more that we remain grateful for what we have, a peace of mind is everything. A peace of mind you can't buy with a winning Powerball ticket. That's millions of dollars. A peace of mind doesn't necessarily come with material because if you strip yourself or anyone of materialism and money. How do they or us feel about ourselves without that? What do we have to offer anybody else 
outside of money, outside of clothes, cars, bank accounts, what do you have to offer someone that's genuine? So when we see and understand that right now, as you're listening and as I'm speaking, someone is homeless. There's snow on the ground. It rains. It's cold out. Even on the nicest days, they don't have a home. There's no shower. Where am I going to get my next meal? I know for myself, a part of my story was when I lived in Kentucky. Before I had gotten sober, I remember two times going to the White Castle on 6th and Broadway and eating out of the dumpster about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. First time was fine. I had a ton of hot food to eat. Second time I got kicked out, which I was very upset. And I just couldn't understand why are you kicking me out of a dumpster? It's not like somebody else is going to get this food. I never forget that. We We have to be patient with ourselves. We have to be sympathetic. We have to be empathetic. Considerate. Not everyone has even capabilities or abilities that you have. But some strive for it. Some are trying to get there. This is where it's up to us to be selfless. And be grateful for what we have to share with somebody else. When I once heard in early sobriety, your past becomes your greatest asset. That made absolutely no sense to me. It was totally ridiculous because my past was nothing but torture. Once I started drinking, my childhood was great. Um, You know, I was raised by my mom and we always had lights. We always had food. She was loving. Um, I had a lot of friends. But once I started drinking, the lights went out. Very dark. I, I don't forget that. And I understand that when I get in my own way, I can potentially hurt someone and also, first and foremost, hurt myself. Getting wrapped in, into certain emotions. It's very important to understand what it is that emotionally controls us. What are we emotionally attached to? That's going to determine a lot of our thinking, a lot of how we feel. Bondage of self has a lot to do with emotion. When you have these thoughts, of the past, things that affected you. Someone broke your heart, um, trauma, someone stole from you 10 years ago, however long ago. You, that thought crosses your mind and you get mad. You are now in bondage of self. Well, you've been in bondage of self. We have to seek relief. A lot of ways of seeking relief is, of course, talking and speaking about the situation in depth. 
with someone you trust, but it's also working with other people. It's also being compassionate, opening your heart, letting someone else know you care. There's plenty of times, including myself, just want to hear, I understand, or it's okay. That carries uh, miles upon miles. To some, it might not seem like a lot, but here comes that other. It's the little things that matter. We are all capable of these things for other people. Now, when we're sacrificing our time to listen or be there for someone else, even opening up to people, trusting in a power greater than ourselves, we get rewarded somehow, some way. Don't know how, you know, think of a time where you might have been short um, some money or something like that. And out of left field, here comes someone just giving you money. Um, There's a lot of different scenarios where that came right on time. Good karma. There's good karma. And of course, we all know of bad karma. Choice. We can stay in good karma. We can stay in good faith. And understand that when I give to you out of the kindness of my heart with no intent of bragging to the next person, when you're practicing integrity, oh, man, you want to talk about a world opening up to you. Things just get easier. You feel lighter, less stress. You feel good about yourself. That does nothing but feed more self-love. And sometimes, you know, when it comes to self-love, it comes off to some people as you're just being selfish. All you care about is yourself. Well, in one aspect, you're right. You are a thousand percent right. I am being totally selfish. For Lavoie, at one point, I was a people pleaser. And it still comes and goes. I'm a lot better with it. I had to learn that no is a complete sentence. How about that one? But once I learned that, here comes these tests. Oh, you're acting like this. And, you know, and I'm going back and forth in my head like, oh, I hope they don't think that I'm just being a jerk and whatever. But I know I'm not being a jerk. I just don't have it or I just can't. I know I would if I could, but I can't. I don't owe people explanations out of the kindness and depending on the context of, you know, the conversation, of course, explanation is necessary, um, depending. But for myself, you know, we have to look at why is it that I look past myself. We will give so much praise and thank yous and love and chances to everybody else. But when it comes to ourselves, we can get trapped in thought. We can cling 
to that lower vibration of self-esteem and self-worth. Oh, I'm just not worth it at the end. Remember, nobody is in our head but us. Well, besides the, our higher power, no one truly knows how we feel. But we do. But yet, we're not the fastest to say, I love you to ourselves. To say, I care about you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. But we're there for everybody else. But when you're grateful and you see what's right in front of you, those little things grow tremendously and you're full of love and you're standing up more straight. This is all extremely important and will unconsciously dismiss a lot of this. You know, walk past a homeless person. Oh, well, they put themselves there. Oh, well, and here's some ego. Well, I remember when I was homeless or I remember when I didn't have this. And you know what I did? I picked myself up and I did this and I did. Well, that's good for you. But check this out. Not everybody is you. Some of that strength that's coming out of your neck. (laughs) Why don't you share that from your heart with somebody else? You see, it's, it's a lot of things where within ourselves... There's insecurities, right? So we get into this thing of overcompensating. We don't want nobody to know. So when certain things happen, we feel like we might have to prove something. And I don't like the generalization of things, but a lot of times as a man, you may have to feel you have to prove how tough you are or how much of a man you are in various different aspects. That couldn't be any more of a lie. Yes, there are rules, regulations, guidelines of society. This is what society portrays as a man. A lot of us understand I know uh, the generation before me was a lot harder on it. Um, But even in my generation, I have a bunch of friends, uh, male friends, who weren't allowed to cry. Why? So we deprive ourselves of these natural emotions. So within ourselves, while we are depriving ourselves and we build these characters because they're not real. We created them. We create these characters that lose sight of compassion, of love. There's various reasons why a lot of different things happen in, in households that may have some with a distorted... Um, visualization or perception of what love actually is. But within that circle of peers 
is someone who can help. Nobody is in a position to look down on somebody else unless they're reaching down to pull them up. All of this starts within us. When we have these thoughts, our thoughts are just as bad as our actions. Just as real. You think the same thing enough. I used to hear this term all the time in meetings was, if you go to the barbershop enough, you're going to get your hair cut. So when you think the same thought often enough, you start to project it onto people as if you did it. Good or bad. But then you're behaving as if it was done. It's all created. And another essential part within these thoughts and, you know, the the bad ones or whatever, the uh, low vibration ones can make us feel guilty. Things we've done, however long ago, or even things that we thought, here comes guilt, shame, remorse, bondage yourself all over again, or never even left it. It's important to forgive yourself the same way that we can forgive a cheating girlfriend or boyfriend was someone who stole from you, someone who harmed you, you found the courage to honestly forgive them. We struggle with forgiving ourselves first. So when we can forgive ourselves And we can feel this sympathy and empathy for ourselves, not feeling bad for yourself. But you're embracing yourself throughout this process. You're hugging yourself. You're loving yourself. That opens the door to love and care for others properly the way that they need it. Because now we can give it. We know what that feels like. We all know what it feels like to just want someone to forgive us, to know that you're trying your best, but you need some help. You know, we know what that feels like. But somebody's going through that right now, whether you visually see them, whether you consciously know someone's situation is worse off than yours, that doesn't matter. The point is that someone is. That propels us into being grateful for what we have and who we are. It's work that doesn't end, but it is ever so rewarding. And it's we are all again, we are all capable of being there for other people, but we got to be there for ourselves. Practicing integrity builds character. When you help somebody that's 
it's not everyone's business because, and again, it's when we're able to look at ourselves first. If somebody helps me and then go tells the world, it might make me feel like, wow, like not good. So why would I want to do that to somebody else? Treat people the way you want to be treated is a way of living. A lot of these cliches, quote unquote, are the most powerful ways to live and give you the best sleep of your life. Give you some of the rewards better than you could actually dream of. But we just have to believe that. And once we believe, we put in the work, stay consistent, hold ourselves accountable, take responsibility, only keep people close to you that are willing to call you out when it comes to your behavior, your thinking. How are you treating other people? But you're the one, we are the ones who have to go to bed with whatever is on our conscience. Have, continue to have the beautiful heart that you have. Continue to share love. Give yourself a break and remember you are first in your life. And I pray that you love yourself as much as I love you. Thank you again so much for listening.